Well, good morning, church. As we uh, we get back to Daniel, Daniel chapter four today, I, I wanted to open our time together with just just a little bit of review. What, what what have we learned about our God in the last three chapters of the book of Daniel? We've we've had a couple little breaks. What have we learned? Big picture, we've learned that the gods of men cannot do what our God does. Our God can bless his people who are under his judgment while they're in a foreign land. Our our God can reveal hidden knowledge. He can interpret dreams. He can give things that nobody knows. Our God can deliver his servants in the most amazing way from certain death. All things that we've seen. In light of just these three chapters, what we see about our God that he's a God that should be loved and feared and worshipped above all other gods. And we're not even through the book yet. Yet how has Nebuchadnezzar, how's Nebuchadnezzar responded to these increasing revelations of God's supremacy? Has he embraced him as God? No. No, all Nebuchadnezzar's done is, is add Israel's God to his big catalog of all the other gods that he knows and worships. He, he still doesn't really understand who Daniel's God is. But if we look even more closely at the first three chapters and our chapter today, we actually see something else about God. Given the reality that Nebuchadnezzar is the person who's at the center of these events. It's becoming increasingly clear that that, that God is trying to capture Nebuchadnezzar's undivided attention. These works are for Nebuchadnezzar to see, for Nebuchadnezzar to respond to. And what does God want Nebuchadnezzar to know? It's repeated three times in our text today. The Most High God rules the kingdoms of men and he gives it to whom he will. But even more, even more in this truth, God doesn't want it to be simply known. He wants it to be something that causes Nebuchadnezzar to abandon his sinful pride and respond in humble, heartfelt worship. So in this, what do we see? Yes, we see that our God is nothing like the gods of men. All the stories of the gods of the world are are self-serving, capricious deities who really could care less about the daily life and eternal destiny of humans. Whereas the all-powerful, all-knowing, infinitely sovereign God of the Bible has revealed himself to be a God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, Exodus 34. That matters in our text today. It matters in our text that he's revealed himself in Ezekiel 18 to be a God who does not delight in the death of the wicked, but is overjoyed when the wicked turn from their way and they live. I I want you to see that this is the heart of our God. And it's why I've organized the sermon today around three key movements in our passage. The mercy of God's warning in verses 4 through 27, the folly of human pride in 28 through 33, and the mercy of God's restoration in 34 through 37. 
We have a passage that the mercy of God is bleeding through in amazing ways. So let, let's turn, turn to begin with the mercy of God's warning. As we begin, it's important to point out that, that it's been probably 30 years between chapter 3 and chapter 4. Most likely 30 years. And, 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 and a lot has happened in this time frame. To begin with, in keeping with God's warning through Jeremiah to Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar has raised Jerusalem to the ground. The temple's been destroyed. All of its articles have been taken away. The king's palaces and all the royal, royal buildings have been burnt to the ground. All of the people of Judah but the poorest of the land have been hauled off into exile and they are now in Babylon. We can see that recorded in Jeremiah 39, 1-10. Even more, as a ruler, this is a point in time where Nebuchadnezzar is at the apex of his power. He's conquered lands. He's at the height of his rule. He's, he has, at this moment in time, the greatest kingdom on earth. I mean, he's fulfilling the imagery of the vision in Daniel chapter 2, the head of gold. And if you think I'm exaggerating, all we have to do is read the historical works of Herodotus who visited Babylon a hundred years after Nebuchadnezzar who recorded things like the city had walls that were 25 feet thick. Over a hundred feet tall. The, the main road into the security secured by a, a, a 50 foot tall gate that wasn't just this large gate but it was beautifully ornate. On top of this, Nebuchadnezzar had built one of the seven wonders of the ancient world just to make his wife happy. The hanging gardens. Nebuchadnezzar is at the height of his power. He's the most powerful man on the face of the planet. I mean, he even tells us in the opening, he is at a period of ease and prosperity when the events begin. He's not out at war. He's not defending his kingdom. He's at ease and prosperity. But it begs the question, what could cause an all-powerful king who's at the top of his game, like Nebuchadnezzar, to send a letter to his subjects that begins like this? King Nebuchadnezzar to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell on the earth. Everybody, listen to me. It seemed good for me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. His domain endures from generation to generation. What would cause a pagan king at the top of his game to send a letter like this? Well, I think the answer as we look at our text today is the mercy of God. The mercy of God. Not merely in the king's restoration at the end of the chapter, but in the fundamental message and implication of the king's nightmare. Even the nightmare is a demonstration of God's mercy. So let's uh, just consider the nightmare on its own before we even get to Daniel. 
Nebuchadnezzar, at the moment he has this nightmare, he has every reason to believe it's about him. Every reason to believe it's about him, especially if we view it in light of his vision in chapter 2. Do you remember back in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom was part of this massive statue. It was the head of gold, and the statue was utterly crushed, destroyed, and blown away by the wind by a stone. The stone then replacing the statue with a mountain that covers the entire earth. The simple takeaway from this vision being that the kingdoms of men will be utterly destroyed by the kingdom of God. And in this nightmare that he has here in chapter 4, what does he see? He sees a massive tree that reaches up into the heavens. When all of a sudden an angelic being enters the scene and calls for the tree's destruction. Chop down the tree, lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. See, if we look at the vision in chapter 2 and this vision, we can see Nebuchadnezzar has every reason to believe it's about him. In Daniel 2, 37, what did he learn? He learned in being the head of gold that God had given him rule over the children of men, the beasts of the field, and the birds of heaven. Clearly given. And what do we see in this second vision? We see that the tree's dominion is described in the very same terms. What is his kingdom doing? Providing food and shelter to the beasts and the birds and all flesh. All humans, everything is being provided for. There's overlap in the imagery. Every reason to believe it's about him, but the maddening aspect of the dream was certainly the angel's declaration. What, how, how, does a, how does a cut tree eat grass? Why is a stump bound with iron and bronze? Who's given the mind of an animal? What are seven periods of time? And even more, even more, what does the Most High God want to accomplish? For these answers, he definitely needs an interpreter, which he gets in Daniel. And Daniel comes on the scene as we saw already, as we had the text read to us. And with you, he humbly reveals to the king that God's judgment is coming. He doesn't want to tell him. He doesn't want to bring bad news. He doesn't even want the pagan king that has conquered his nation to suffer what he has recognized in this dream. But the first thing he wants him to understand is God's judgment is coming. Nebuchadnezzar is the tree. He's at the height of his power and influence as a king. His greatness has reached to the heaven. His domain of his kingdom is extending to the ends of the earth. But God himself has decreed that he's going to chop the tree down. Yet, Yet in chopping the tree down, The mechanism that God is going to use is the king is not going to fall in battle. He's not going to die of a disease. He's going to lose his mind and become like a beast of the field. God's going to sentence Nebuchadnezzar to full-blown insanity. The second thing that Daniel reveals is that God's judgment will be both measured and purposeful. 
Judgment is coming, but God's judgment is measured and it is purposeful. I mean, in this, we can, we can see that God could have rightfully afflicted Nebuchadnezzar with lifelong insanity. But he doesn't. But rather, he measures his discipline at least two ways in this interpretation. Number one, in verse 25, God makes it clear he's going to limit the king's discipline to seven periods of time and 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 we could spend the next 15 minutes talking about seven periods of time but if we just give it the simple explanation is Daniel doesn't tell us what seven periods means in 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 Hebrew mindset seven is completion so is it seven months is it seven years we don't know But we know however long it's going to take, it's going to happen and it's going to be fulfilled and we know it's not seven days because the way his hair grows and his nails grow. This is something that lasted. It was significant. But the goal is it's going to accomplish its purpose. The other note about God's God's work here is that the stump is preserved. Right? Right? Tree is cut down, stump is preserved, it's bound in irons and bronze, and at the end, that stump is going to be reinstated. Nebuchadnezzar is going to be reinstated as king when God accomplishes his purpose. So what I want you to see here in the warning of God's judgment here is, is, is God is not behaving like that irate boss flying off the handle. The angry father who blows up every time something happens. No, no, God God is working for a specific purpose in the life of Nebuchadnezzar. He's working towards a goal. Let me show, show it to you. Three times in the text today, the goal is stated, beginning in verse 17. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living might know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and he gives it to whom he will and he sets over it the lowliest of men. We see the same thing in verse 25, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and he gives it to whom he will. Verse 32, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and he gives it to whom he will. When we see repetition, we know God wants us to understand something in the text. But now at this point, a few of you may be wondering, where do we see God's mercy in all of this? Where's God's mercy? I mean, does this sound very merciful? You're going to be turned to an animal. You're going to eat grass. You're going to lose everything. I mean, I mean, sure, he gets a promise of restoration. But, but let's, let's just take a look, look, closer look at Daniel's conversation with the king and the mercy starts to shine through. So let's walk through from the top down and I'll show you what I mean. Number one, yes, God's judgment is coming. Number two, yes, God's judgment will be carefully measured. It will be directed towards a specific purpose. But the most important implication of this dream, according to Daniel, the third thing that he wants Nebuchadnezzar to know is that God's judgment can be avoided. God's judgment can be avoided. 
Verse 27, therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Friends, what I want you to see is this is how God most often reveals his mercy to mankind. What I mean by that is that God's mercy is most often demonstrated in a warning of judgment that's accompanied by a message of escape. They come together. Read through your Old Testament. Have you ever read through the prophets? I know some people are like, Mark, I read the prophets. It's so depressing. But you need to read them with the right glasses. Because in the prophets we see glowing declarations of God's mercy. For all of the declarations of punishment and all of the warnings, what does God constantly declare through the prophets? Return! Just come back! Just stop doing what you're doing! Why do you keep chasing after gods who can't deliver you? Why do you keep digging cisterns that can't hold any water? Come buy food without money, drink without money. I'm going to give it, right? That's God's words in the prophet. That's the mercy of God through the prophets. And we see the same mercy in the New Testament, don't we? In the gospel of Jesus Christ. We see a warning. Judgment is coming. Wrath is in the future. But there's a way of escape. Right? The mercy of God. That's that's how we see it. We saw it earlier in John chapter 3. Let's just pick it up in verse 17. God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world. The arrival of Jesus isn't about condemnation. No, verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he hasn't believed in the name of the one and only Son. What's the gospel message? Why is the gospel message an offense? It comes to people who think they're doing just fine and God should be happy with them and it says you're not. It says, it says you're condemned but you don't have to be. There's a way of escape. There's mercy to be had. There's mercy in the declaration of judgment because it helps us see our need for God's righteous saving work in Jesus Christ. See, this is what I want you to see is that Nebuchadnezzar's, pardon me, Nebuchadnezzar's nightmare is a divine warning. It's a shot across the bow. It's not a declaration of unavoidable judgment. I mean, just think about it. God could have judged and destroyed Nebuchadnezzar just like he did with Herod in Acts chapter 12. Remember that? Herod's arrogance, Herod's pride. We got Nebuchadnezzar's pride. Herod dies consumed by worms. Right? It happens. Doesn't happen in Nebuchadnezzar. No, because God is demonstrating his mercy to him by giving him insight into the future that he might respond. 
fact, let's just stop here for a second. We can see it in the gospel. We can recognize it in the prophets. This message of, of judgment and mercy coming together that we might respond. But did you know, or have you considered the way God pours out his very same mercy in the life of Christians? So for a moment, just, just, just talking to Christians. There are times that God mercifully warns us about the catastrophic outcome of our present life. Christians that are living in sin. Sometimes it's obvious, blatant sin. Other times it is very secret, hidden sin. And in a moment... Whether we see it in somebody else's life, maybe, 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 it's, maybe we're just simply watching a movie on the television and something happens in the interactions and it gives an insight. There's this like electric shock of, this could be me. That could be my future. That could be the end result. The Holy Spirit uses the moment to connect it and helps us see Not in a vision, but in the illustration of somebody else's life, fictional or real. What 20 years from now might look like, 15 years might look like, if we consider, if we continue on the same course. There are times that God gives us a glimpse into the depravity of our own hearts. by convicting us of the sinful desires that, that, that we haven't pursued in actual action yet, but that we have set up a greenhouse for. We're nurturing thoughts and we're nurturing desires. If they're, le- if they're allowed to grow and come to fruition, it's gonna mean sin in our lives. And God lets us see Sometimes it's through reading his word. He lets us see. It's mercy. It's mercy so, so we can see. And, and, and while we may not, while, while at the moment of, of any time that God exposes our sin in our life to help us see it as we ought, we might feel acute fear. We might feel shame and anxiety in the moment. but they're always expressions of God's mercy. Because in it, he's saying, turn. It's not too late. Turn. Humble yourself. Don't continue to walk in pride and think that this is not gonna matter. And the great news in the gospel is that God is always there to empower our faltering imperfect steps of obedience are imperfect steps at repentance. As we turn, mercy is found in the cross. So God's mercy at work. The question, the question when it comes into our lives is the question as it comes into Nebuchadnezzar's life. Are we gonna ignore God's warning or are we, go, like Nebuchadnezzar, are we gonna respond? 
Because as we know in the text, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't respond and in it we see the folly of human pride. It's one thing to look at Nebuchadnezzar's life, but it's a kind of folly that happens in all humans' lives. Let's pick it up in verse 28. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of his royal palace in Babylon. On the roof, he's at the top. And the king answered and said, Is this not great Babylon, which I've built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it's spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. And you shall be driven from among men, your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, and he gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and he ate grass like an ox and his body was wet with dew from heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. Now just pause for a minute and remember this chapter is a letter of testimony from Nebuchadnezzar himself. He wants us to see the folly of pride. He doesn't try to cover up his arrogance. He doesn't offer excuses. He wants us to see he could have escaped God's judgment, but he didn't because he didn't listen to Daniel's warning. He wants us to see it. See, see, the true folly of pride is what, is what does it do? Is it warps our perception of reality itself. That's what pride does. I mean, I mean pride blinds us to, to our true state as, as human beings. Right? right? We're, we're, we're finite, we're needy, we're imperfect, and we're accountable to God. But it blinds us to the reality of what's going on around us. Pride deadens our conscience so that we don't feel the limits of our finiteness. We don't feel the shame of our sin. We don't feel the, feel, feel the fear of God as we ought. There's things we should feel ashamed for. We should change. We should repent. But we don't even feel like it's wrong anymore. Pride does that. Pride plugs our ears and makes us virtually deaf to everyone who's trying to help. It deadens our ears. It deafens us to the truth. Whatever arena it's coming from, we don't want to hear it. And so we don't. And in the end, what does pride cause each and every one of us to do? It compels us to place ourselves at the center of the universe and demand that everything find its proper orbit around our lives. I'm the center of the universe. And you'd better find your proper orbit around me or we have some serious conflict. In the end, what does it do? It makes us believe that we can be like God. That's the folly of pride. 
There's nothing in pride that's positive. And what's the end result of Nebuchadnezzar's perception warping pride? The result is that he despises the mercy of God. The nightmare becomes a reality. That's what happens. And that's what happens for however long the period goes until he lifts up his eyes to heaven and recognizes the truth in verse 34. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion, it's an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing and he does according to his will amongst the host of heaven and amongst the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? He sees God for who he is. In fact, we think about it, where were Nebuchadnezzar's eyes at the beginning and end of this event? At the beginning of the event, he's on a roof looking down at everything and at the end, he's hobbled in the grass looking up into heaven. Which is where he finally acknowledges in all humility the true power and sovereign authority of God over all things. And here we see the hand of God again. Nebuchadnezzar's humbling did result in the most merciful restoration. Right? God, God, God didn't have to restore him. I mean, I mean, history's full of kings who fall from power and never return. I mean, I mean, I mean, even if Nebuchadnezzar was given his mind back, God didn't have to restore him as king. And it's actually amazing if you think about it that he is restored to king because who in their right mind appoints somebody who's been a lunatic eating the grass of the field back to the kingship? Nobody would allow a lunatic to return to power. God restored him. That's the only way he's back in authority is because the hand of God. It's the goal of God's work. See, See, why did he do it? Why did God show such mercy to a pagan king? Well, according to our passage today, it's because God had a specific purpose. And, and, and this is the thing, we, we, we don't always get purpose statements for what God is doing in our lives, like as, 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 as succinct as this. God wants, verse 17, all the peoples of the earth to know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, and he gives it to whom he will, and he sets, it, and he sets over it the lowliest of men. And that is our God today. Christians, this is the grounds of our hope. We live in a time the nations are raging. Right? Kingdoms are tottering. 
rulers are failing. But we know something the world doesn't know. Jesus is on the throne and he has conquered our greatest threat. See, we know something more than Nebuchadnezzar. Hebrews chapter 2, starting in verse 8. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, that is Jesus, God putting subjection in everything to Jesus. He left nothing outside of his control. But here's the qualifying statement. This is the not yet that we live in as we wait. We wait. I should say the already we live in as we wait for the not yet that's coming. At the present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. That's a hard part of the Christian life. Jesus has been given the throne. He is king. All things have been subjected to him. But at the moment, we don't see everything in subjection to him. That's what causes anxiety and fear and panic and worry. But he goes on to say in verse 9, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. He's conquered our greatest enemy. See, see we, I got, you know, like we, we don't know what the future of our country is going to be. We, we don't know what the outcome of the wars in Ukraine and Israel are going to be. But we can know one thing we don't have to live in fear. No matter what is going on, we don't have to live in fear. Because Jesus has secured our eternal joy in his everlasting kingdom if we are in Christ. We don't have to fear. We don't have to look to human rulers to find our security. But the second thing I want you to do, I want to do here, is to consider this event in light of Daniel's initial audience. When I first came to this text, I was planning to spend a bit more time on the sovereign rule of God. And as I dug deeper into this text, I was catapulted towards this stunning implication. But we have to read it in light of Daniel's original audience. The implication is this, then I'll show you how we see it. If somebody like Nebuchadnezzar can be humbled and restored, then no one is beyond the reach of God's mercy. If somebody like Nebuchadnezzar can be humbled and restored, no one is beyond the reach of God's mercy. We see this in the notable correlation between Israel and Nebuchadnezzar. There's a correlation. See, God used the picture of a once proud tree being reduced to a stump to describe his judgment against the people of Israel before he ever used it to describe Nebuchadnezzar. 
So you see, when the prophet Isaiah was called upon to preach a message of judgment to the people in his day, and Isaiah was preaching to the ten tribes in the north, not the, not the two in the south, so this is even before Judah falls, but he's, he's, he's preaching two centuries before Nebuchadnezzar, and he asks God, God, how long do I have to preach? And nobody's going to respond. Because that's what's going on. Nobody cares. They don't care what he has to say. Listen to God's reply to Isaiah. Chapter 6, turning verse 11, then he said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until the cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land and though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. It's a picture of Israel. It's a picture of exile. It's a picture of judgment. But what's the final words? The holy seed is in the stump. The holy seed. This is picked up later in Isaiah and also in Jeremiah. We don't have time for it this morning where we find it's the root of Jesse, this branch that comes out. A ruler comes out of the stump. See, the judgment that Nebuchadnezzar was threatened with and that he endured is the same judgment that has fallen on the entire nation of Israel. Israel was a tree, it's been cut down, it's been destroyed, and only a stump remains. That's what's going on in exile. Yet it also meant for these people who had been told that they were a tree cut down to a stump. It meant that they could look at Nebuchadnezzar's experience and they could see their own experience and it could be a source of hope because they can look, look, if a pagan king could be forgiven and restored when he humbled himself before God, Israel could be forgiven and restored as well. That's the promise. That's the hope that Israel can find in Nebuchadnezzar. In fact, God promised back in Solomon's day of a time when Israel would need to look and they would need to find hope. They would need to humble themselves. Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. God says, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will hear, heal their land. This is the stunning implication. This isn't just about Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is a living parable for God's people. See, if the Israelites in the midst of the devastating experience of their exile would humble themselves before God and repent of their sin, they could be restored to God's favor and return to their land. After all, the Most High God 
rules the kingdom of men and he gives it to whom he will, which means he can easily restore his people as well. Therefore, the fall and rise of Nebuchadnezzar was a story of hope for any Jew who understood the story of their fall and God's promise of restoration to them. So I'd like to close with some implications for us today. If someone like Nebuchadnezzar, pardon me, if somebody like Nebuchadnezzar can be humbled and restored, then there is no one beyond the reach of God's mercy. So just kind of thinking of three ways we can apply this this morning. Three ways. If you're not a Christian this morning, it doesn't matter whether your life has been an epic mountain of sin and failure. It doesn't matter whether you've spent your entire life rejecting God. And it also doesn't matter if you've been faking it to make it. and You've been playing a fake Christian in the church for a long time but have never come to true saving faith. It doesn't matter what your backstory is. You're not beyond the reach of God's mercy. It doesn't matter. You're not beyond the reach of God's mercy. Simple promise of the gospel. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's a promise for all people on every corner of the planet, no matter what their background. Moving to Christians. We've, we've kind of talked about it a little bit already. If you're a Christian who's been living in your sin, you, you, you know you're living in rebellion. You know you're actively betraying the body and blood of Jesus Christ in your actions. You're also not beyond the reach of God's mercy. You don't need to work your way back to him in some form of twisted penance. No, the promise of 1 John 1, 9 is if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The return step from rebellion is one step. It's repentance. It's the call. There's not a reason to remain where you are, especially in light of this passage. And finally, for all of the Christians who are just trying to figure out how we can world. We can be salt and light in this world and share the gospel of Jesus Christ in, in a culture that's a post-Christian culture, cancel culture. Like, like, like how in the world are you supposed to live as a Christian and share the gospel when the very words of the gospel are of great offense? I think one of the things that can help us keep sharing in light of this text is the profound, deep conviction that no one is beyond the reach of the gospel. No one is beyond the reach of the gospel. Picture the most adamant Christian church hater you can think of. Do they have more influence and more power than Nebuchadnezzar had? 
They don't. It's good to remember Paul's words in Titus 3. But when the goodness and mercy and loving kindness of our God and Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness. It's so easy over time for us to think it's about us being good and it's our righteousness and there's something inherent in me that, that, that was good. And, and he says, no, no, you weren't. Not one of us. No, but according to what? His mercy. The very thing we've seen from, from beginning to end in the text. Mercy. According to his own mercy he did. We didn't clean ourselves up. No, no, he cleaned us up by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. It's always mercy. It's never earned. And we need to never forget that if somebody like Nebuchadnezzar can be humbled and restored, then no one, no one is beyond the reach of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's close in a word of prayer.